The story is told of a postal worker whose job was to process all mail that had illegible addresses. One day a letter came to his desk addressed in a shaky handwriting to God. So he thought, boy, you know, I better open this one up and see what it's all about. So he opened the letter and read the following. Dear God, I am an 83-year-old widow living on a very small pension. Yesterday, someone stole my purse. It had $100 in it, which was all the money I had until my next pension check. Next Sunday is Easter, and I had invited two of my friends over for Easter dinner. Without that $100, I will not be able to buy food with it. I have no family to turn to, and you are my only hope. Can you please help me? The postal worker was touched and went around showing the letter to all the others in his office. Each one of them dug into his wallet and came up with a few dollars. By the time he had made the rounds, he had collected $96, which they put into an envelope and sent back to her address. The rest of the day, all the workers felt a warm glow, thinking of how nice uh, this is what they had just done. Easter came and went, and a few days after Easter, another letter came addressed from the same old lady to God. All the workers gathered around while the letter was opened, and it read, Dear God, how can I ever thank you enough for what you have done for me? Because of your generosity, I was able to fix a lovely dinner for my friends. We had a very nice day, and I told my friends of your wonderful gift to me. By the way, there was $4 missing. It was probably those thieves down at the post office. <laughs> oh, the point. It's always wise to refrain from coming to a final decision or conclusions before we weigh all the facts and the evidence. You know, the book of Proverbs tells us it is foolish to give an answer before hearing the matter. And that's the wonderful thing about Bible study. You know, all, as we dig into the Word of God, God gives clarity in all areas of life and how we're to conduct ourselves as His children. You know, the Bible says that all mankind has sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that none of us are righteous, that we're all in rebellion against God and His authority in our life. We come into the world with that bent, that sin nature, the Bible tells us, and that unless there's a miraculous intervention from heaven above, we are doomed to be condemned for our sins. God's standards are laid out very clearly so we can measure ourselves against the perfection that God lays out. And as a result, all of us are guilty as charged before God. And that's the bad news. Because of that, we will be uh, judged for that sin. We are condemned already, John 3.18 tells us. But the good news is this, as has been mentioned already, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, that God, we love God because he first loved us. And yet while we we're sinners, he sent Christ to die for each and every one of us. But there must be a repentance or recognition of sin. There must be a repentance from sin, which means simply a change of mind and change of heart. That you know what, that you're a good person because you're not. That all roads lead to heaven because they don't. And because of any other thing that you think of that's contrary to what God clearly has to say. That repentance is turning or having a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of direction. Turning from sin and turning back to God. And the final step is to respond with faith to the finished work of Christ. That Jesus Christ died on the cross, the sacrifice acceptable to God, the only sacrifice. Three days later he arose from the dead. And that those who would respond with faith to what Christ has done on their behalf, his death and resurrection... The Bible says that at that point, those who receive him, God gives the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. 
And as God's children, he also has a very clear, uh, he has clear direction as to how we are conduct ourselves uh, while we're here on earth, this side of eternity. And with all that in mind, we come to a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that connects with what was started already in chapter 3. If you recall, Paul clearly identifies God's qualifications for leadership in his church. The pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, as well as Titus, focused on how the church is to function from leadership to the congregation's response to them. Much attention is given to the leadership in these letters, and for good reason. You know, the church's ability to fulfill its calling is humanly dependent on one crucial factor, and that is the quality of its leadership. Hosea's statement, like people, like priests, applies today. Churches do not rise higher than the level of their leadership, for they set the bar, just as households do not rise higher than the leader or quality of leadership is set by the bar of parents, or businesses by those who own those businesses or employers, or government by those in governing positions of authority. The bar is set always in every area of life by leadership. And as a consequence, nothing devastates churches or ruins a ministry more quickly than bad leadership. That was the problem that was faced by Timothy as the overseer of the church in Ephesus. And, and most of its problems can be traced back to ineffective leadership and how the people failed to respond to them or did respond to them. So it all goes back to leadership and the response to such leadership. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, in this particular section that we're going to look at, we learn how the members of the local church are to respond to its leaders. In this passage, God basically tells us how we are to treat our elders. And so how to treat our elders. And in 1 Timothy chapter 5, we read these words starting with verse 17. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow them. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. In this passage, Paul lays out seven responsibilities that address how to treat the elders, and specifically meaning the leaders of the local church. The first thing that we're told in the first couple of verses is that we are to respect them. Number one, we're to respect them and their ministry. To respect them in their ministry. As we see back in uh, verse 17, it says, Let the elders who, who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. God says that we should respect those elders who rule the church in the same godly fashion as they rule their own personal homes or their home lives. 
those who meet the qualifications that were laid out, if you recall back in chapter 3, those who meet those qualifications are worthy of respect. And those who rule well is a specific term that's used. It's important that we note such respect is, is not only for being in the position in which they are in or occupy, but also is contingent upon the performance that also takes place while they were in that position. It's one thing to respect the position of a person, which is rightfully so as well, but there's also a tie or correlation as to the performance of that person. And that's important for all of us to understand. We respect the position of authority, we respect the position of those in leadership, as we rightly should, but then there's also a correlation to the performance as we do in every area of life. You can respect a person who's in authority in your business, for example, because they're the boss. But there's something different that comes in, can you also respect their performance? We can respect parents because that is right before God. The position of authority, respect your parents, honor your parents, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right in the first command that has a promise that your days would be long lived. But the reality of it is, is that a person's position also is tied into their performance. So there's a dual responsibility. Not only should we respect them because that's a position that they have, but their performance should be worthy of the manner in which they've been called, and that is the, the position that they find themselves, in this case, in the local church before God. So as we look at this, the title, if you recall, elders is a general term throughout the epistles that we've looked at or these letters. It's a general term referring to those who are overseers in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. The titles elder, elder, pastor, and overseer all describe the same person, and that's made more clear by Acts chapter 28, 20. If you want to look at that, verses 17 and 28, all three of those words are used interchangeably to describe the same position. So elder, pastor, overseer are all words that are used to describe the same position, and yet at the same time, it involves uh, um, uh, some different job descriptions or, or um, uh, characteristics of the job. For example, a pastor emphasizes a shepherding ministry. The word pastor emphasizes a shepherding ministry. It has to do with providing provision. As a shepherd would provide provision for his sheep in, in the way of feeding them, a pastor's responsibility is to feed his flock or to feed the congregation. And what we're talking about is you know, teaching and preaching the word of God. Because as Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Like newborn babes, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, we are to long for the pure milk of the word of God so that by it we may grow in respect to our salvation. Whereas in the physical world, food, physical food is what we need to be able to grow physically. In God's kingdom, spiritually speaking, we need the, the word of God, the truth of God, the word of God, is the scripture, the Bible, uh, in order to grow in respect to our spiritual condition. You and I cannot grow spiritually without a regular ingestion of the Word of God. We just can't. It's impossible. And it concerns me when I see people that, you know, one hour a week or whatever the extent of your Bible study is, if you would stop and just put it into the physical realm, if you ate one meal a week, you would be a rather sick-looking puppy. You know what I mean? I mean, it just, it just doesn't happen. So physically, we can see that, but spiritually, we tend to neglect that. We cannot survive and grow spiritually without a regular diet of the Word of God. So challenge yourself, ask yourself, how often do you spend in the Word of God? It will be directly proportional to the kind of growth that you will see and others around you will see. Remember, Timothy was challenged to grow so that his progress may be evident to all as an example how all of us should grow. 
in every area of life, I have never met anyone who was content to be a child. Kids can't wait to grow up. Little do they realize what a good gig they have. <laughs> All of us as adults look back and go, why was I in such a hurry to get out of high school? You know, and to move on with my life and to become a responsible adult. Sometimes it's overrated. And so we begin to realize that, you know, but not in every area of life, people want to grow up. And yet, in the spiritual realm, we're content to, eh, you know, I don't have any interest in growing spiritually. How foolish that is. How foolish that is. So we are to respect them. The word pastor has to do with the emphasis on shepherding, the provision that's made to feed the flock, and protection. Remember, Timothy's responsibility as a pastor, all pastors' responsibility, is to protect his flock from error, which means to teach truth so that people can recognize that which is a lie, to defend the faith and protect from the lie. You know, Paul had warned the, the Ephesus elders in Acts chapter 20 and 28 that there was coming a day when, you know, wolves would rise up from among their own midst. midst. They would be dressed in, you know, sheep's clothing, but they were wolves, man. They were ravenous, and you need to be able to recognize truth from error. And the only way we can do it is through the Word of God. The word overseer has to do with authority or leading function. Elder has to do with spiritual maturity. So this passage assumes such men are qualified and are to be shown the appropriate respect. Why should we respect, show respect towards our elders? Turn with me back a book or two, actually two, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 give us some insight as to why we, we should respect those who are our elders. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Notice what he says, that we should esteem them highly. Why? Because of their work, because of their responsibility. Turn ahead a few books to the book of Hebrews. The same thought is carried out in the book of Hebrews. Right before James and 1 Peter, the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, we read these words. We're told to remember those, in verse 7, who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Remember the pattern that was laid out? We're to imitate those who are godly people and follow in their footsteps. In verse 17, he goes on to say, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So as we look at this, those in leadership, whether in the church in this particular case as elders or in the home as parents or in government as governing authorities or in a, the place of work or business as your employer or your boss, we should show them the proper respect that's due them. Number one, as it relates to church leadership, for the work that they do. And notice every time it's mentioned, the work that they do is teaching the word of God because they are instructing in God's truth. For the work that they do, which also includes oversight, also includes protection and provision, also includes demonstrating a spiritual maturity or a pattern by which we are to follow. It goes on to say, in the accountability that they have in verse 17 of Hebrews, that they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Those who will give an account. You know, the responsibility of church leadership is to watch over the household of God 
to be very careful how they respond to God's people and, and how they conduct themselves, as it is for parents to do the same with our children, as those who will give an account to God as stewards of God's resources. Those in church leadership give an account to God or have to answer to God as to how they rule the household of God and how they treat God's kids. Man, that's, that's, that's quite a responsibility. As parents, we will give an account as how we treated our children who aren't really our children, but God's children who have been entrusted to us. I mean, I stop and think about, can you imagine you leaving your children in the care of someone else while you go on vacation or, or whatever it is, or you go to work for the day and you find out that the people who are watching over your children have in some way abused them during the course of their stay with them? I mean, I can't even imagine the sense of in indignation and anger that would be there. Who do you think you are treating my children that way? See, and as church leaders, there's a very careful understanding that anything that we do to God's children, we will have to give an account to the Lord himself. And so it's real important to recognize if they abuse their position, uh, they are to be held accountable. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. You know, it's, we're not talking about a blind loyalty or a blind respect or trust, but one that is deserving to those who rule well. You know, the Bible is very clear that we are never to put ourselves and submit ourselves to an abusive environment. Uh, God protects and loves his children. And he never wants to subject anyone to that type of environment. So it's very care we've got to be very careful in a position of authority. That's why the word of God is so clear with church leadership that we are to rule with humility as a shepherd and not lord it over those allotted to our charge as in somehow a dictatorial or an autocratic type of approach. You know, it's our way, my way, or the highway. And if you don't like it, too bad. You know what? Everything that we do is to be tempered by the truth of God's word. And the beauty of all that is, is that there's a huge responsibility and accountability for church leaders, for pastors and elders as to how they manage God's household, how they treat God's children, his family, which is the church. You know, there is safety in a multitude of counselors, the plurality of elders. And any, and, and then when we look at that, and wisdom in looking into a matter before making a decision. With all that said, I want to give you an update on what's happening with Kindred. This past Tuesday, I met with Pastor Dave. We continued our discussions about ministry forms, specifically Kindred and Sunday mornings and me teaching. Uh, Thursday evening, uh, Pastor Dave met with the Board of Elders again. And on Friday, I received the following decision that they made that evening, Thursday evening. Pastor Dave told me that the Board of Elders has come to the conclusion that no change in the ministry form of Kindred will occur. We will continue to meet as we do on Sunday morning. So that means we're stuck with each other. On Sunday mornings with me continuing to teach. In addition to that, any change in future ministry forms will only take place when all involved are in 100% agreement as to the Lord's leading in that direction. So. so at this point, I'd like to, I want to thank all who had committed this matter to prayer. You know, the Bible tells us the faithful, effective, fervent prayers of a righteous man accomplish much. 
And I also want to thank those who sent emails or letters or spoke to Dave or members of the board. You know, and we were very careful. And the reason that I wanted to be very careful in this area is that I wanted to clearly see, as we did in our leadership, what God's leading was in this, in this matter. We didn't want to influence any of you in any way and start any kind of campaign because it has a tendency to, to violate God's leading and to be able to clearly see God's direction. And those of you who were led to do it were led because God had put that burden on your heart. I had people call me and apologize. Chuck, I want to apologize because I wrote a letter and, and I know you just asked us to commit to pray. And you know what? And, and, and no one has to apologize for that. We have always been open to the God's leading in any one of our lives individually. And for you to have done less would have been disobedience to God. He who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it to him that is sent. Our only concern was that it wasn't a campaign that was, was, was made by men, but we were genuinely seeking the Lord's direction in this area. So those of you who wrote letters or spoke to, to Dave, or Pastor Dave, or any of the members of the Board of Elders and expressed concern as to why a, change was to be, why a change was even considered or how such a change would further God's kingdom, you know, I want to thank, you know, also I want to thank Pastor Dave and the men on the Board of Elders because, you know, they listened to those concerns. And, and, and they listened before they made a decision. Because there is a safety in a multitude of counselors. You know, and any one of us can have our own will, uh, you know, where we want our will to be done at the expense of God's will. And so, you know, leaders aren't immune to that. And that's why the plurality of elders is an important function of leadership, so that they can hear from one another. There's safety in a multitude of counselors. There's wisdom in seeking, a, you know, of investigating before you give an answer to a matter. And so all of us um, want to see Calvary Church united in purpose, vision, and values, a church that's dedicated to reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ, of building up believers in the faith through worship, instruction, service, and evangelism. That's the blueprint of the church. We do have a very unique situation. There is no model for a church with a Sunday school class of 700 people. Um, but, but, you know, but, we ha but we also have a God that's not limited by human models. You know, after all, a definition of model is a smaller imitation of the real thing. And uh, my take has always been this. God is not limited by human hands. God is not limited nor put into a box when he wants to act any way that he chooses to act. And so it has become very clear that while man plans his ways and ABFs and forms of ministry are man's plans, we must always be sensitive to how the Lord leads in those areas. Man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. And so this is an announcement that I'm convinced that the enemy did not want to see take place. But I will say this again, greater is he who is within us than he who is within this world. And so if God leads you to do so, I, you know, I'd encourage you to send a note or email or a word of gratitude to Pastor Dave, to the guys that are on the board, thanking them for listening to your concerns, thanking them for taking into consideration God's leading in this matter, and, and, uh, you know, and truly seeking God's direction and, uh, I, you know, I would just pray that, you know, that God would continue to receive all the glory for what is accomplished through this ministry that we call Kindred Fellowship here at Calvary Church. So let's get back to our study. So the question that you ask yourself is, okay, if we're to respect them, how are we to do that? First Timothy, uh, we go back to chapter 5, and here's what he has to say. That we are to honor them, give them double honor. In fact, the word honor means to respect or to regard, it also has to do or translated with fixing a price. If you remember the last time we were together, we talked about honor or honorarium in English, that we're to give an honorarium to those who rule well. 
while all the elders are to be honored, Paul singles out some who are worthy of what he calls double honor. He differentiates between the general category of elders and those who serve with greater commitment, effort, and excellence. They're worthy of greater acknowledgement from the congregation that they serve. They should receive ample, generous remuneration and respect beyond that of those leaders or elders who are not as diligent. So the word that he uses, those are worthy of double honor, respect and to pay them. You know, you ask the question, you know, why are pastors, you know, paid, you know, and this becomes their job or occupation or whatever. It really isn't. It's a calling. It's a vocation. And the reason that they are remunerated for that is so that we can free them up from the concerns that we all have in the world of going out and making a living and trying to take care of our needs so that they can focus and concentrate on being those who preach and teach the word of God. The word that he also says that those who work hard, there's a responsibility to those who are being supported by the resources that God entrusts to the, the members of a local church. There's a responsibility to work hard and not to be lazy at their, their, their services, not to start to take for granted their position, but to realize there's an accountability and a stewardship issue. Hey, you know what? We're being paid to make sure we do what God has called us to do, which is to be diligent. It's not even so much as, as the amount of time that's spent but it has to do with the energy that's put into it. It means to work to the point of fatigue or exhaustion, not to stress the amount of work, but rather the effort. A man's reward from God is proportional to the excellence of his ministry and the effort that he puts into it. Excellence combined with diligence mark a man worthy of the highest honor. Excellence combined with diligence is a man who is worthy of the highest honor. And notice what he says, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And there's a difference between the two. Preaching in a general sense is to, to, to exclaim the truths of God, to, to confront people with God's truth in a setting such as this, and to exhort people as to how to apply these truths that you are learning in our time together. Preaching calls for a heart response to God, while teaching is a necessary bulwark against heresy. I mean, it's necessary to learn the truths of the Word of God so that you can identify falsehood when you're confronted with it. So when you're in a workplace and a, you know, and a co-worker is talking about, you know, well, I'm a good person, I'm going to go to heaven, whatever it is, you'll have the necessary information to say, but it's not based on goodness, for none of us are good. And to be able to enter into that conversation, what is good? What makes you good versus another person? And goodness is all subjective. Goodness is like saying, I'm a good driver. You know, well, what makes somebody a good driver? What makes somebody a bad driver? There has to be an objective standard. And the standard that's set are the laws that have to do with transportation, speed limit, things of that nature. You know, that's what is objective. And you measure it against that. Well, you know, I think I'm a great driver. I know Linda may think I'm the terrible driver. And not that she does. It's just an illustration. <laughs> But some of you guys know what I'm talking about. And so, you know, I didn't want to point, point you out specifically. But when we go back to this, he says, for the scripture says, and notice the reason for this. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And Paul quotes the Bible as an authoritative source of information. And he's saying this, even God's word says that an ox who is threshing a field is entitled to eat as he is threshing. He's working hard to provide physical food, therefore he's entitled to eat. How much more so should a man of God who is working hard to feed people spiritually the truths of God's word, how much more so should he be entitled to eat or have his physical provisions made? It's a no-brainer. It's like, wait a minute. You know what? God takes care of an ox. 
how much more so should we as God's people take care of those who feed us the truth of God's word? Now he also goes on and quotes from Luke who says the laborer is worthy of his wages and that is something that Jesus said which is fascinating to me because Paul quotes Luke as scripture before the canon was even put together, one New Testament writer recognizing the authority or the inspiration of another New Testament writer. Jesus said, the worker is worthy of his wages. And it's, it's, it's awesome when you consider the validity of the truth of God's word, that even before the canon was realized, Paul knew that Luke's writing was inspired by God and thus authoritative in the word of God. So those who rule well, deserve double honor, respect for their position, and a respect that goes with a remuneration for the hard work that they put in in teaching and preaching the word of God. A second thing that we're told that we're to do is to, if you notice in the next passage, is to refuse, I'm sorry, to, to, to um, refuse to criticize, to refuse to criticize those who are in such a position. Refuse to criticize those who are in such a position. And it has specifically to do, in verse 19, notice he says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder, says, on the basis, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. It's important for all of us to understand there are always people eager to falsely accuse a man of God. They may do so because they resent his calling. They may do so because they reject his teaching. They may, may do so because they resist biblical authority. They resent virtue. Or maybe they're even jealous of the Lord's blessing on that person's life. You know, there are always people who are eager to falsely accuse a man of God. Now, ultimately, however, they demonstrate by making such an accusation uh, that they have become messengers, messengers of Satan. Because false accusations are one of the most dangerous weapons or strategies or schemes of the devil. If you go through the word of God, you will find all of God's people, almost without exception, being accused falsely by the enemy. You'll find it in the life of Joseph and Moses and David and Jeremiah and Nehemiah and even our Lord Jesus Christ was falsely accused. And the reason is very simple. That is a scheme or strategy of the devil to keep the word of God, his truth, from going forward. If the messenger can somehow be discredited, then the message must not be any good either. And so now God's truth doesn't get presented to God's people. That is a scheme or strategy of the devil. In view of that, we're given very clear instruction as to how we should treat our elders in this area. Number one, he says, don't even receive such a criticism. Receive means to give it consideration, to entertain such an idea, to consider in our minds such allegations. You know, the, the, the best thing to do, the simple act of turning a deaf ear to them is one of the best ways of protecting elders. Now, what that means is this. If you have a problem with someone in leadership, then go to that person one-on-one -on -one as is laid out in Matthew chapter 18. If you have a problem with something that's going on, we have a responsibility to go to a member or members of the board because that's the structure in the church and express our concerns to them about whatever the matter is. What this is talking about is for us as members of the congregation not to entertain any thought that's brought to us or accusation against those in leadership. Don't even give it a second thought unless there are two or three witnesses to that accusation. See, it's real important to realize that all the gossip and all the slander and all the garbage has to stop in God's household. 
you know, God's kids shouldn't conduct themselves that way. There's no room for it. If there's a problem, then go to those who are directly involved to be able to resolve it. And we're not going to resolve it by talking to one another and, and, and gossiping and talking behind people's backs. There's just nothing good that comes out of that, and it's sin. And we've got to be careful to conduct ourselves in speech in ways that are pleasing to God. We've already learned that. And so he says, don't even receive that accusation. An accusation is a charge that's brought against someone uh, for the purpose of condemnation. It's a compound word. It may, basically means it's a public a compound word, and it means public meeting place. Such a public accusation is not to be entertained. In other words, don't even give it a second thought. Don't even think about it. And, and in fact, you know, a lot of times it's just wrong. I mean, through this whole thing that we went through, so much of what I heard was just wrong. It was just wrong. And it's like, where did that come from? You know, every time I was confronted by someone, for the most part, it's like, where did you hear that? And who told you that? And it's just wrong. And it's so easy to get things wrong. In fact, there's a great story that illustrates how easy it really is to get things wrong. A woman was struggling to get ketchup out of a bottle during a dinner. And during her struggle, the phone rang. So she asked her four-year-old daughter to go answer it. The little girl answered and said, Mommy, it's the pastor. And her mother said, well, well you know what, T tell him I can't come to the phone right now. And, she, and so the daughter said to the pastor, mommy can't come to the phone right now, she's busy hitting the bottle. Now, you know, that could be taken wrong, I think. You know, and so it's just that kind of stuff. Now he says, accept. You know, he says, accept. And that means this, on the basis of two or three witnesses, the accusation may yet prove to be false, but must be investigated and not ignored. I'm going to talk more about that in a second. But the point is this, in light of this particular uh, point, and that's to attack someone in a position of authority is a very serious matter before God. After cutting off part of Saul's robe, it said, he, it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe in 1 Samuel chapter 24. And if you know the story, basically what David did was uh, Saul was after him and wanted to kill him. And David, in an effort to show Saul that he could have, have retaliated against him many times in this, this, you know, going back and forth, while Saul was asleep, David came from his hiding place and snuck past Saul's guards and took a piece of his robe and cut it with his knife. And he could have slit his throat at that time. He could have killed him. And after they had woke up and David had gone, you know, David stood across from a chasm where Saul was on the other side and he held up his robe and said, Look, I could have done to you but I chose not to. And even though he recognized that, you know what, he could have showed him that I could have killed you last night if I wanted to. If I was everything you accused me of being, I could have killed you. But the Bible says he was so convicted about his disrespect for Saul's authority. And what's fascinating to me is Saul was not a good king. Saul's performance was desired. But David realized that at that point, Saul was still God's anointed. He put him there for a purpose and a reason. And so he was convicted by his actions that, you know what, I should have never shown him such disrespect. Psalm 105.15 warns, do not touch my anointed ones and do, not, and, and do my prophets no harm. Those who set out to falsely accuse God's servants are treading on dangerous ground. God takes those attacks personally. If you remember what he said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me when you persecute my people? He went on to say it's hard to kick against the goads. 
You know, if God's hand is upon a man in his ministry, don't you ever try to stop it. Even Gamaliel in Acts 5 recognized if God is in it, who are we to ever stop it? Never try to stop it, for your fight is against God and not the man, and you cannot win. You cannot win. I cannot win. We cannot stop what God has chosen to do. But what about elders, because there's going to be times, what about elders who are not ruling well, or worse yet, are guilty of sin? Is there no remedy? And the Bible goes on to tell us in chapter and verse 20, listen, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also may be fearful in sinning. So there's an, there's an attitude that, you know what, no one in authority is above the laws of God. No pastor, no elder, no parent, no boss, no employer, no governing official, no member of the police department, no member of the judicial system, no judge. No one is above the laws of God, for there is one God, and all the rest aren't God. It's as simple as I can put it. Write that down. That was pretty good. <laughs> There's only one God, and we're not him. And we all must give an account according to Ecclesiastes 12. Solomon said, know this, fear God, obey his commandment, and realize that every one of us will give an account of our lives to our creator, period. No one is above God. The idea of rebuking means to expose or to bring to open conviction, to correct or reprove. It's one of the profitable functions of God's word. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? Correction, reproof, rebuke to bring out openly, to bring before the light. One of the things that was beautiful about the process that we went through here was to bring everything before the light. What is the motives? What is the reason? Why do you want to do this? Why should we consider a change? What are you thinking about this? What's the purpose of it? How will this honor God? How will this affect God's children? Who is this going to hurt the most? Who is this going to damage in this process? Hold it to the light, and if God is in it, we'll all see it. But if this is done in darkness behind closed doors, and it's in some secret little cigar-filled room, so to speak, as so many secular decisions are made you know what God doesn't he doesn't conduct himself that way for there is no darkness in our God at all he is not like man who can lie there is no darkness in God hold it and expose it to the light and you know what and when God's in it all the people will see it and praise God for it the only ones who won't are those who are guilty of sin and they'll be held the accountability of the standard that's set forth in the word of God but when God's in something, everyone knows it. So to rebuke means to open and bring before publicly. Elders are to be protected from false accusation, but are not to receive immunity from true ones. Those who continue in sin are to rebuke publicly before everyone. And this is important to understand. Anyone in a leadership position in the church pastor, elder, anyone who is guilty of sin or not meeting the qualifications that are set forth in 1 Timothy as we've seen and throughout other passages of Scripture should not be in leadership, period, because the bar is set by its leaders. And if they do not qualify or they are guilty of sin, they are not to be in leadership and they disqualify themselves. Now, when a person is removed as a pastor or as a member of the board of elders, is removed from that position, there needs to be a public explanation and the reason for it is because then there will become whispers and talking and gossip and rumors and all of that. So you hold him up to the light and you say, this person has disqualified himself from being in this position for the following sin. And not that that person can't be restored to fellowship. It has to do with the high standard of God's leading. 
A man who sins before God is not qualified to lead God's household. He is a member of, you know, the family of God. He is to be restored gently. He is to be brought back into fellowship for those who repent of their sin and turn from sin. But it has nothing to do with the position of leadership. That's a whole total different issue. And so we're to do it publicly. And why should we do it publicly? So it says, and so that the rest of them will be afraid to do wrong before God. And it's the rest of the same kind, meaning it means all the other guys that are on the board of elders, if one guy's called out and, you, and, and brought out publicly and said, this guy has violated his position of trust as a member of the board, he has sinned before God, before man, he is to be removed from that position, he has repented of a sin, we welcome him into our fellowship, we restore him as a member of the body of Christ, but we are not going to allow him to continue in leadership because we want the bar set high according to the standards of God's word. We will rebuke him publicly so that everybody understands understands why and there's no second guessing there's no rumors there's no innuendos there's nothing more to it than what it actually was which is bad enough but so that the devil doesn't get an opportunity or a strategy or a foothold it's told to get involved in a local church and begin to tear it apart from the inside because people don't like how that was handled people don't like what was said people don't think the guy should have been disqualified he didn't come up publicly we don't know we've gone through this as a church and there's hurts and there's damage because of that and it was because it wasn't held to the light and brought forth because the person that was involved wouldn't allow that process to take place and as a result you know people are struggling with still to this day not really understanding what really happened you know what and that's because this was violated this principle was violated and there is a ripple effect that continues to this day we are to follow clearly the instructions that are set out in the word of God we are to rebuke those in the presence of all for the purpose that the rest may be fearful of sinning you know what let me tell you something fear is a powerful motivator in scripture the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We, we should choose not to sin because, you know what, we should be so afraid of standing in judgment before God. We should choose not to sin because we're so afraid of the consequences that are laid out in Scripture. We should choose not to sin because, you know what, we're just afraid. That's good. And I hear people today say, well, God, you know, fear, no, fear is good. Every child that does wrong should be afraid of dad coming home. <laughs> Wait till your father gets home. No! That's good. If you do right, don't be afraid. If you do wrong, you better fear. Because there's a price to be paid. Love is a motivator. Don't do what's wrong because you love your parents. Don't do what's wrong because you love God. Don't do what's wrong because you realize that Christ died on the cross to set you free from the bondage of sin. We are no longer our own. We've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Don't do wrong because it's an appreciation, an act of worship, knowing the price that Jesus paid on the cross so that you and I could be free from sin because we love God. If we love him, we'll obey his commandments. But you know what? And still be afraid to do that what's wrong because you don't want to pay a price or the consequence of choosing wrongly. And you know what? And the Bible says it rewards a great motivator too hey you know what do what's right because one day God in his kingdom will reward those who do what's right before God Peter said hey what are we getting out of this deal we left everything we left our businesses we left our families we left everything of any value earthly and Jesus said whatever you left I will restore it a hundredfold in the kingdom of God he is no fool who gives up that which he cannot hold to get that which he can never lose 
You know, that's just the truth of the providence of God. Those who really believe God are saying, you know what, there's nothing in this earth worth hanging on to that God isn't going to replace a hundred times in his kingdom. And you know what? And that's a good motivator too. Fear and love and rewards are found all through Scripture. Those are healthy motivators. And to fear God and the consequences of sin because you will be publicly humiliated is beautiful. It's beautiful. We don't, we don't enjoy that in our culture as we should. There's no sense of public shame or humiliation for doing that which is wrong. There are only a certain handful of things anymore. You know, abuse a child, yeah, that's wrong, and public humiliation. And there's only a couple things that are, that are left, sin, in our culture that people still look at publicly and say, that's disgusting. Everything else, it's like, well, who are we to judge? Everything else is, well, you know what? I won't judge you if you don't judge me because I'm thinking about doing what you just did. We'll all cut a deal with one another. It's crazy, and it's wrong before God. And that brings me to this point. We are to respond without partiality. Respond without partiality. No sense of bias as we apply the principles of God's word. In verse 21, I solemnly charge you. I want you to notice, he says, I charge you. That's a command. I charge you, I command you. In the pres- notice this. In the presence of God in Christ Jesus and his chosen angels. The presence as witnesses. God and his angels are witnesses of our judgment process. He goes, to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. In James 2 and Proverbs 24, 23, it warns of the sin of partiality. I call it the, old, the good old boy network. And the good old boy network works something like this. You know what? We will treat this group of people one way, and we will treat ourselves another way. We will hold this group to a higher standard that we don't even meet ourselves. That's the good old boy network. And God says there's no place in in, in God's providence for the good old boy network. Every principle is to be applied without partiality or without bias. You know, if you look at this, you know, this sin in conjunction with, with, you know, you look at what's going on in our culture today. There are many organizations that have suffered because there was the sin of partiality or bias in how they handled internal matters. They didn't hold it to the light. They didn't call them out publicly. They didn't remove people that are in a position of trust from leadership. They shifted them from one church to the next or this place to that place. They knew about it. They kept it quiet. But they didn't want anybody to know about it so that it didn't cast any kind of aspersions on that particular group of people. See, God's people, you know, hey, listen. If we sin, we need to be held accountable with no sense of hypocrisy, no double standard. Everyone's equally, you know, equally held accountable under the laws of God. We need to hold it to the light so that people see that there's a high standard. That's why it's so important that police officers, when they're corrupt or they're dirty, are held accountable to the public and to a high standard because if they get away with it, the whole institution then has a shadow over it. They're a dirty police department. They don't, they don't police their own. They have a double standard. They let this guy get away with it, and yet they hold somebody else accountable. They can't do that. You, a judge who's guilty needs to be held to the same standard as anyone else who violates the law. A police officer, you know, a, a, member, you know, a, a pastor, an elder, needs to be held to the same accountability and standards as all of us as members of the household of God because if we do not do that, then the whole institution is tainted and tarnished by our sin of partiality. And it, there's pressure. We experience that. New building program, oh, huge, huge facility, a pastor who was here at one time who was guilty of sexual sin. 
the tendency of partiality would have been, man, you know what, we can't, we can't man, how are we going to do this? How are we going to hold this man accountable to the standards that are set forth in the word of God? I mean, look at everything that was built around this man's ministry. But you know what? Where sin is involved, we must, we must hold that standard higher than any individual that we may favor. And you know what? And when we do that, God still blesses because it's God's standards that are upheld. You know, we can't make a deal in areas where God doesn't allow us. That sin of partiality, I charge you, I command you. He goes on to say, you know what, well, how do we protect ourselves from getting leaders that we shouldn't have? Well, very simply, resist choosing them too quickly. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. He's saying that, hey, don't lay hands means to identify with them too hastily means putting somebody in an office or a position way before they should. And if they end up in that position and they sin before God, those who chose them are equally responsible before God or culpable for the sins that they commit. You know, we got to be very careful about who we put into positions of leadership in God's household. He says, don't put them there too hastily. Otherwise, you're held responsible or equally culpable for their sin. You know, and, and I like this verse. It seems so out of place in verse 23 where all of a sudden Paul's telling Timothy, hey, you know what? D no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I, I like to look at it as saying, you know, remember that even people in leadership have problems just like everyone else. It's like, why is this verse here? You know, in this discussion about leadership, Paul quite possibly, and I'm not dogmatic about this because I'm not, you know, I'm not 100% sure, maybe he wanted us to understand that leadership is not immune to the same kind of problems that you and I have. You know, in addition to making it in this life financially, family responsibilities, temptation issues, marital problems, health matters, there's a constant burden for the church and God's people. That's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11. You know, with everything else going on, I have a constant burden for you people. And, you know, and, and it could take a toll on a person. And he's saying that for the problems that you have with your stomach, you know, don't just drink water because the water was no good. You know, if you go to certain places in the world, you don't drink, don't drink the water. You know, you hear that all the time. Just don't drink it. Dysentery is a major problem because, you know, uh, of, of the, uh, the fail-safes in the system to be able to get out contaminants. And he said, you know what, drink a little bit of wine. You know, and, and, and you know, some people are thinking, man, you know what, I got those kind of problems. I think I'll drink a little bit of wine. But uh, that, that's not what he's saying. Remember, in, in the context, the wine was, had a medicinal value. And so anytime a scripture is talking about drinking a little bit of wine, it's not talking about as a beverage or to be able to deal with the problems and pressures of life because we're to lean upon the Lord and not on our own understanding. We're to acknowledge him in all our ways. We're not to lean on a martini or a double or a beer or, you know, wine because we can't handle the pressures of life. You know what? Hey, you know what? Cast all your cares upon him and he'll care for you. He's talking about the medicinal value of, hey, you know what? That'll help your stomach and your ailment and then he goes on and the last thing that he says has to do with the selection process of, of, of our leaders how do we treat our leaders you know realize that time is needed in order to select them and what he says by that is this the sins of some men in verse 24 notice the sins of some men are quite evident meaning that when it comes to choosing leaders some men's sins are so evident don't even consider them in a leadership position it's like everyone knows Forget it. They're not there at this particular point. Their character, they don't meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy. It, and it goes on, it's quite evident. Going before them to judgment. So the judgment's made, forget it. 
For others, their sins follow them, which means in our process, we will nominate somebody for the board of elders, and there's a process of evaluation or judgment, and then you begin to check into all the facts. You begin to check them out. You begin to look at the qualifications laid out. Do they meet those qualifications? Let's call around. Let's ask people. We need character references. We need to investigate slowly. We don't rush people into a position of leadership because we have so many slots to fill and so many jobs that have to be filled. That's crazy. That's crazy. Don't do that. You find people that are, are, are qualified by God, and you do it through a careful examination of the evidence and qualifications. And if you can only find so many, then that's all that there is. And so, you know, we need to be careful as an organization, as a church, not to mandate we need to have so many people to fill these positions because you might not find that many qualified people. However many qualified there are, that's the number of people you have on the board. That's as simple as it gets. And so he goes through this process, and he also goes on and says, hey, you know what? Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident. There are some people, I call it no-brainers. They've demonstrated over a long period of time, they meet the qualifications. You ask anybody, they should be in that position. If God leads them or they aspire to be in it, they should be in it because it's a no-brainer. And then at the same time, even those whose good deeds are not quite evident, Good deeds cannot be concealed. It'll come to light when the investigation is done, the selection process. All of that to say this. The church desperately needs men who are qualified to serve as pastors and elders. Their lives must meet the standards of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Their ministries of those of 1 Timothy chapter 4. That's the thing I love about doing book studies because we can build upon it week after week or passage after passage so that it makes more sense. The church's responsibility is to treat them with respect, those who work hard because of their work and their accountability to God, or to refuse to entertain accusations against them without witnesses, we're to publicly rebuke any who are guilty of sin without any sense of partiality. God's standard applies one and to all. We're to resist choosing them hastily and to remember that they have struggles as we do and we are to be gracious and merciful toward them in our interaction with one another. No pastor or elder or church member is perfect. But, but, that should not hinder us from striving for perfection. That is not an excuse before God. We are to strive for perfection. The ministry of the local church rises and falls with its leadership. Godly leadership means God's blessing, and I know that is what we want, and that is what we need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a God who is in control of all things. Thank you for your word that gives clarity as to how we should conduct ourselves as members of your household. Not only how lost should come to faith, saving faith through Christ, but how we as children who have received him and believe in his name should conduct ourselves or walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We thank you for these pastoral epistles that clearly define for us church leadership and its qualifications and how we should respond to those who are in such positions. And the healthy balance is iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. How the pastors and elders and the congregation work together for the purposes of God and his kingdom. To preach the gospel and to teach truth, to defend the faith. A church that's committed to reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ and building up those who have come to faith by discipling them and building them up and equipping them for the work of ministry to be productive, reproducing members of the household of God. 
Lord, I thank you for this passage that clearly helps us to understand how we should treat our elders. May we do so in a way that is pleasing to you. God, we thank you for those in leadership here at Calvary Church that have sought your will in the area specifically related to kindred in this ministry, that they were open and teachable, that they were sensitive to your leading, and realizing that human models aren't always the only way in which to conduct the church. So God, we thank you that as man plans his ways, you direct our steps. And we thank you for the leading, and we thank you for your answer to prayer. We thank you that you're a God who hears all things, and we have direct access in our time of need that we may receive mercy and grace. So Lord, thank you for that. And thank you for this time that we could have to study your word. May we apply the things that pertain to us as we're convicted and led by your spirit. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.